welcome everybody to Dojo Talks organizers and players. Um, today's topic is inspired by a few recent events, um, all of which I thought were tied to the relationship between the organizers of chess tournaments and like the top professional players who play in their tournaments. Um, and uh, one of these events was uh, at Wake on Zay. Um, Daniel Dubov had somebody in his circle, so to speak, close circle, who tested positive for COVID. His own test result hadn't come back yet. The organizers asked him to wear a mask, um, and uh, he refused to, and so he forfeited the game. Um, then he played a couple more games before a test did come back positive, and now he's out of that tournament. Um, so there was a disagreement there between him and the organizers about masks. Um, another uh, thing that came up was that, uh, you know, there were some short draws, as there are in almost every major tournament. So, for example, there was Karyakin drew very, very quickly with White against Magnus, then tweeted some weird, some, you know, some like interesting or weird tweets about it. And people started uh, arguing about that again. And, uh, and then there was another uh, two recent things that I caught my eye a month ago. One was somebody published the dress codes for players in FIDE tournaments. Uh, you know, they were different for men and women, and uh, they were like quite detailed and descriptive uh, for men. And uh, I remember the, the time that uh, a player got thrown out of a tournament, a Grand Prix, I mean, sorry, a, a World Cup for wearing for wearing shorts. It's like an interesting time. Um, and then another thing was that players uh, were complaining on Twitter. A couple of top players were complaining that they were being asked to share money from their personal sponsors with World Chess, which is the organizer, formerly Aegon, but the organizer of a bunch of FIDE's World Championship cycle events. So all of these things, I think, speak to the mutual relationship and responsibilities between players and organizers. What do players owe to organizers? What do or organizers owe to players? They're each providing something to the other. They're also always, you know, signing contracts, but beyond the contract, you know, what, what do these two parties sort of like owe each other and, and how should that relationship work out? And I'm interested um, to see where we can get uh, in sort of puzzling out that relationship together today. So I'll ask the two of you first uh, about the short draws. How problematic or acceptable is it to you? You know, where do you fall on the spectrum to have some like super short, you know, forced draws, repeating moves that have already been played before um, at this level of tournament? Okay, so yeah, right off the bat, as usual, we have to, I think we have to differentiate some stuff because we're talking about tournaments where you know, it's the best of the best. They're getting invited. They're getting uh, guaranteed money, appearance fees, all this stuff. Um, to me, I think it's a little bit different than if you have a player who's paying his own cost at like an open tournament, wants to make a quick draw to like secure a nice prize. I think that's like a def like totally different situation, right? But here we're yeah. mainly focusing on the best of the best who are basically only paid. Focusing on it. Yeah. We're yeah. only talking about tournaments with conditions and top, top level players. Right, right. So yeah, leaving the the people aside, because I definitely sympathize with players. Like if if you have a prize on the line or if you're not feeling well, 
or whatever. It's like you don't feel like playing that day. I totally sympathize like wanting to to make a quick draw and take a day off. But here we're mainly talking about the players who are pay, paid to play games to entertain the fans or the best of the best. And uh, yeah, most people don't like seeing them make uh, a quick draw, especially in like the same exact move order, like the famous Berlin draws that we have now with like these repetitions um, that is, well, they got super popular during like the online rapid events um, that were being held during the pandemic. I think like the, the chess 24, like Magnus champion uh, chess tour, I think it was called. So there was a bunch of like quick draws in uh, those events. And um, yeah, so uh, I don't know. There's like there's so many things here. I definitely it's it's an issue. I, I also found it quite strange that 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 Sergey Karyakin tweeted about it is like a badge of honor. You know, he was like hashtag say no to twenty nine hundred. It's so weird to me when these like memes infiltrate into like actual events and start affecting results of the right. third of like, it. Is he sitting at the board thinking about like what he's going to tweet when he decides whether or not to take a draw or <laughs> yeah, that, that was so, I mean, okay. It's kind of beside the point, but like, what, what are you doing? Sergey Karyakin, right? Like this is your chance to play Magnus, like the greatest player of all time. You have white, you know, you've beaten him before. Like you can play a great game and you're just like deciding not to play against him like a, a troll <laughs> like it's it's very very strange i don't know um but um yeah my my feeling is that you get a problem when it's like uh when it's a lot when it, when it starts to become a pattern uh, you know magnus we all know he's a huge fighter and he's had uh, so many examples where he he plays on in, in positions he like rarely accepts draws um, but every once in a while, he'll make a quick draw, and I think uh, people give him some slack for it because we know he's he's a big fighter. But when you have players that are kind of like doing it over and over again, like multiple times as white throughout a tournament, making a quick draw, like 20 moves, um, you know, not really putting any pressure on the opponent. Uh, yeah, it's, it just feels like, well, why are they playing then? What, what's the point? Um, Jesse, what are you thinking? Well, so first of all, we should say this was spurned on by this tweet that Karyakin made after he drew a, almost, it wasn't prearranged, but the position had been seen many times before. And he tweeted it. And then Emil Sutovsky, a famous player in his own right, who is now a FIDE official, you know, kind of tried to burn him on it. Mm -hmm. And it was weird in two ways. First, as a FIDE official, he has no business saying anything. <laughs> about any player, forget about it. You're a fee, you're a bureaucrat now, buddy. You are not a chess fan. You cannot go around saying things about other players, not appropriate. It speaks, it sounds like favoritism or something like that. No, no, no puedo, no can do. Um, but then the other hilarious thing is of course, Emil came from, Emil's around my age. It came from a Soviet culture where drawing was very acceptable especially among friends would be like, oh, we're not going to play today. And also among people with the thought of uh, conserving energy. Uh, it was a much bigger thing back then than it is now. The idea that you can't play every game all out. That was a very Soviet idea that you have to save your energy. Um, and so I just say, you know, in my lifetime, that's really 
evolved dramatically, the uh, how you feel about short draws. And I think two, it's revolved for two reasons. One, that chess culture has is not just Soviet culture. Like when I was a kid, the strong players were ex-Soviets or even the kids in the US under 21, they would almost all be ex-Russian Jews that came over and were very strong here. And they had that culture. And so you just get to be a part of it and you see what they do. And just as a quick story, I remember I was playing at a, um, an invitational event and this old Hungarian GM comes up to the breakfast buffet and in front of everybody asks his opponent, are you a fighter? <laughs> you know, just, are we gonna play today or not? You know, and it's um, very, it was very just open back in the day. And so two things have happened. Now we're not as Soviet centric as we used to be, Russian centric, you could say, um, but also now with the advent of technology where people are much more under a microscope than they used to be, um, you'll get called out for it too. Back, back in the day, it was kind of a hidden thing that the lower rated players maybe didn't even know about. You know, like in the Tour de France, you've got the omerta, the code of silence. And there was a little bit of that, hmm. you know, with especially with the Soviets cheating. They didn't talk about it openly. And that didn't come out until years later, especially until after the, um, you know, the curtain came down. And one of the ways that they cheated openly was like the idea that they would play draws in the, in their, in, in the interzonals, they would play draws against each other to spare energy. Now, the weird thing is, maybe you're cheating yourself. <laughs> maybe you're cheating yourself when you did it, but it was still with the intention of cheating because they are in their minds, they were saving energy for the other players that they were gonna to try to beat down. Um, I, we should also say that just kind of uh, in our group here in the chess dojo, we have different ages. You know, Mr. Proust is about 10 years younger than I am. And Mr. Proust was really on the vanguard, <laughs> the vanguard of the anti-draw movement. He was out there, man. He was vicious. He was going after people. Yeah. So, you know, it's like kind of a difference in generations too, that, that Sutovsky is actually having this interesting bite back on him because since he came from that culture, everyone's like, wait, bro, we can point to this game and this game and this game and this game. <laughs> those were all obviously prearranged. You know, those were quick draws. So I think we have an evolution of chess culture definitely with the draw issue. Um, sorry, I just have a, a quick story on that because even with the the quick draws, like there's etiquette to it. I remember hearing the story about uh, two players. Um, they were both grandmasters, and I think they were, I don't know, tied for first in, in some tournament going into the last round or something. And um, the player playing black offered a draw on move two of the game. Uh -huh. And uh, and his his reasoning was like, well. I want to know, like, are we playing or not? So you might as well just offer a draw and move one. If it's yeah. accepted, okay, then draw or like, or we'll make 20 moves and make a draw or whatever. And uh, if we're playing then, okay, then I know then we're playing for real and I'll take it more seriously, right? I just want to know ahead of time when, you know? And the guy playing white, well, he was actually offended. It's like, well, I'm playing white, so why are you offering me a draw? It's up to me to offer a draw <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> if I want. And so he decided to, to just, you know, play. And then they had like interesting game and, you know, so... <laughs> Oh, a little just kind of funny. They, yeah, like probably both would have been okay with a draw, but they, <laughs> yeah, just uh, 
got a little bit messy. Um, well, honestly, back in the day, that's why you did it before the game. You wanted to know at the breakfast buffet, are you a fighter or not? <laughs> yeah. And I'm, it wasn't considered a bad thing for people to agree to the draw back in the day. You I could mean, waste time preparing otherwise, right? I mean, once you're at the board, it's really way too late. Well, right. The whole point of making a draw is let's have a day off. Let's yeah. go swimming or something. Recharge for the, the coming round, you know? Yeah. Which, okay, is why it's now kind of considered not not great, this practice. And, and people yeah. people even throw this word around match fixing, which I just feel like it's too strong. Match yes. fixing is like when there's millions of dollars on the line and like teams are like losing to each other. And Well, and we got to say the corollary of this is like throwing a game. Throwing a game is a much bigger deal. Way worse. And the Soviets were doing that too, but that was definitely under code of silence. <laughs> it was like <laughs> some dude in the KGB came up to you and you were like, okay, I understand I'm throwing this game. You know, you know that way it worked back in the day. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, lots of interesting points, but if I could just get a really clear answer from each of you, yeah. do you think that short draws right now are like a problem? Like, is it hurting the chess world in some way? for Karyakin to make this draw with or without his tweet, but. Uh, no, and I think actually this, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that the one of the problems we have is the commentators are like, they do this, whenever a draw is agreed, whether it's a short draw or a long draw, they're like, oh no, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna <laughs> die, there's a draw on the board. Oh no, my soul is gone. How could they have done this to me? Uh -huh. And um, no, draws are interesting and, even that draw with Karyakin, it's like, first, okay, maybe there's the troll element, but it's also like Karyakin is showing that he had his chance at the world championship title. And when he does that, it's like, nope, I'll play in these top events. I'm going to retire soon. I no longer have the ambition. Fine. Mm -hmm. Fine. That's what it tells me. It's mm -hmm. interesting. Okay. And Kostya? Do you well, think it's like not a problem at all, like Jesse or mildly lame or? Yeah, I, um, I do think it's it's not great, but I also, I don't think it's a huge issue. Like there's plenty of fighting chess in Waikon Zane. The tournament has been really interesting. Yeah. And if anything, this drama with the draws has made it for like a really exciting event, right? Like it's kind <laughs> of adding to the chess world, depending on how, how you look at it. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, let's just say I'm really happy we have a world champion that generally doesn't do the the quick draw thing. He's he's much more uh, of a fighter, especially now that he has this like 2900 ambition. I think um, right. that's uh, that's great. And as far as the players that do make uh, quick draws, there's really not that many of them. Um, so my feeling is like, okay, we're still getting tons and tons of fighting rounds. It's not like every round there's like three or four quick draws. Um, and there was a tournament like that. So the tournament where that was, for me was really busted was um, the candidates tournament in Kazan, the one that Gelfand won to qualify mm. for Anand, because there was no uh, there were no draw rules at the event, and there was a number of matches. I think Grischuk did a bunch of them, where like every game was just drawn in twenty moves with white, and then the players went to like the rapid tiebreak, and then they like decided it there, and it was oh, really right. they chose to just play rapid tiebreaks. I remember. Yeah, yeah, instead of playing like the, the four classical games. I think for Grischuk, it was straight up, you know, a strategy because he wanted to get to the rapid tiebreak and, and, I mean, he he got to the final, you know, and and whatever. I don't really blame the players there. It's just that was 
how the tournament was was set up, but that was really an unfortunate event for me because it's just like mm -hmm. well, most of it wasn't worth following at all. Um, thankfully, I don't think most of top chess is like that these days. Um, like you, you might get draws, but I feel like the more important question is, you know, what what kind of rules can organizers have in place for this, and and is it worth it for them to like like stop inviting certain players? Or if, right. are there really are, are there rules that can even prevent you know any kind of um, any kind of uh, short or or uninteresting draws? Right. Okay. Well, then I guess the next question is mainly just to me because I'm the only one who thinks it's a major problem. Um, I I think it's I think it's really like terrible still. You know, just like I thought it was terrible before. Um, uh, again, only you know only in the situation where they're getting paid. And where, you know, lots of people around the world are watching it and they're supposed to, you know, provide um, entertainment. You know, um, that's sort of like the deal. They're providing entertainment in exchange for, for money. And I, I know that, I mean, I know there's like, you know, so, some people may think that like, it's like a really good job. Some people may think it's a really hard job, like whatever. There's all these different aspects to it. But in any case, I think it's pretty bad for chess, Wake on Zay manages to still be interesting because you've got 14 players instead of 10, right? You've got a second section, the challenger section. There's always some good chess um, and you've got a slightly more mixed field, but sometimes you get like an eight player round robin and you get two dull draws in a day. And I mean, it's really, it's cutting into the interest, I think. Mm -hmm. So, so I guess I'll be the one to try and answer why have the short draws persisted? Uh, if, if they're a problem. And I, I think that it's within the organizer's power to change it and they just haven't. So basically, I don't think it's reasonable to expect the players to change their behavior if they've got an incentive to behave the way they're behaving. Like if it's just good for them to do it and you're just like asking them to please not do it that way when there's no incentive, I don't think that's like a reasonable expectations so then you should expect the problem to persist so i think it's on the organizers to change it and they've tried things like 30 move rules but i mean you can still just repeat right so that hasn't that hasn't panned out um but what i haven't seen is them like use the invites <laughs> to do something about it hmm. um and that seems like a pretty simple mechanism i mean you can just tell the players like do whatever you like but if you make like a repetition draw as white no penalty to the players with black right but just so you know if you make a you know repetition with white we won't invite you next year that's it hmm. you know why it, it, it seems like a very small simple thing that they could do and i have to assume that the short draws persisting are because nobody's created a negative incentive for the players and uh that seems like a way to do it. And it's the perfect, it's the perfect punishment. You don't need to like, you don't need to shame them. You don't need to take anything away. Just like invite people to your tournament who want to play chess. Like, like Kostya said, like you've got a chance to sit there and play Magnus Carlsen. There's like a million people around the world who would gladly take Karyakin's seat if he's not interested in that seat. Uh -huh. Right. Every single person in our chat would probably fly there, you know, to the Netherlands on the drop of a hat to uh to take karyakin's place if he's not interested in that seat so replace him i just want to push back a little bit in my experience so this 30 move rule has been around at least a little decade plus 
it definitely changed things. It changed the psychology too. Yeah. It really changed like before, let's say you're black and you're playing some guy and maybe you feel like he's lost control of the game, but it's about equal. That would be the moment you'd be like, hey, buddy, you want to just send it here? It's a psych. It was an interesting psychological yeah, yeah. question. And it would happen maybe around between moves 16 to 25. Now that's gone. And so the, the, the question gets clarified in that period of moves too. Yeah. And then there's just a lot less draws happening because I that agree. moment doesn't happen. I agree. I don't disagree. It definitely had an effect, but it didn't like fully solve the problem, right? The players who want to take rests and breaks and stuff can still can still do it. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder because unless you prearrange it, you don't know what's going to go down. So you still have to bring all of the energy to the game as if it were going to be a real fight. For example, Karyakin didn't know that it was going to be a Berlin. He had no, you, no one knows what Magnus is going to do. No one knows. No one right. knows what the guy's going to do. But Karyakin may have prepared, you know, repetitions against many different openings. You know? <laughs> and even without like a direct repetition, you know, like, you know, you can just play like dully and for a draw, like every game with white. And it could be, you know, and it could be within an organizer's prerogative to invite players who do something more interesting. Or it could have been like this. You're playing Magnus and you don't know what he's going to do. He plays the Berlin and you're like, you know what, buddy? I don't want to play an end game against Magnus. I think it's a little safer for me to go home right now. <laughs> so he wisely chose to go home. Uh, so it's like, <laughs> I came to this tournament to play everybody except Magnus and I opt out of the game with Magnus. Well, let's just say, if you don't want to play an end game against Magnus, you're, you're, you're in your right head. You're <laughs> okay. Well, let's say, let's say we don't agree whether or not it's a problem, but if uh, it were a problem, would we agree that it would be on the organizers to, to change things rather than on the players to just, you know, out of, out of their own love for their fans to. I think that players have evolved in the last 20 to 30 years on this issue, the players themselves, the culture of the players has changed to where it's no longer really that cool at all to go up to some dude before the game that that was totally customary before no mm -hmm. one would have been offended and now especially if you don't know a person you you know you don't know they might be really offended that you asked for a draw it's no longer cool it's no longer cool so there's that and players now are uh much fitter and able to just withstand like like think about fobby man that guy plays long games day after day, tournament after tournament, lives out of a suitcase. No, he's ready to play every day. Yeah. Fabi, the, the, the Fabi equivalent of 35 years ago would have just been, let's take some draws, buddy. I need a day off. <laughs> I yeah. need a day off. Somewhere I think these players got the idea that like playing more chess and playing out more chess games is like maybe even good for their chess level. Right. <laughs> Somehow this idea has permeated. Through that the could partly be like Carlson, right? Because he like sets an example and then you want to be the world champion, right? Like Kasparov set an example of like doing a lot of opening prep and using a lot of energy during your game, right? And Carlson setting the example of like, he'll just move in circles for seven hours. Um, yeah, I, I think Carlson, um, I feel like someone else made this point, but he he took the, the old Smithsloff thing of I'm going to make 40 good moves and he doubled it. <laughs> that's yeah, what yeah, it's yeah. like now yeah okay cool well let's move on to the next one um how should covid measures be agreed upon between the two parties like what 
like uh, what responsibilities do the, do the organizers have with their COVID regulations or preventative measures? And, you know, what responsibilities do the players have to follow what the organizers say, or when are the organizers overstepping um, at the world rapid championship to name one other uh, event that may jog your, your feelings on the matter. The players were like forced to do these tests, but they had to like wait in line and like the cold or whatever, or outdoors for like an hour awful. or something mm-hmm. like that. And then they were all late for their round or something like that. So, um, yeah, what are, what are your guys' first thoughts about, about how these measures should play out? Well, well, first, Kosi, why don't you give us the incident <laughs> sure. that, that uh, sparked this conversation? Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's been a couple of things. Um, David mentioned the World Rapid. There's also drama at the uh, FIDE World Cup last year where, you know, players were allowed to play um, despite being untested. And it's a whole thing on the organizers. But recently it, it was all about Dubov. Um, I, I believe the story is that someone in his inner circle tested positive for, for COVID. Um, and uh, the organizers asked him, to play his next game against Anish Giri wearing a mask. So wearing a mask was like not re- a requirement for this tournament. I think it was suggested. I mean, it's like some of the players uh, are wearing masks just on their own. Uh, but Dubov, okay, then didn't want to, decided to uh, to Fisher the game. He didn't, he didn't show up. And um, yeah, and then there was this whole big controversy about it, like whether he was right or whether he's, uh, you know, he should just put the mask on and, and play. Um, so I think that's actually kind of a good, good point to start. Cause I really sympathize with them. I think Jesse, you do too, right? It's less fun to play with the mask. Well, but let's just finish the story. Oh yeah. <laughs> after, after, you know, somebody around you tests positive, And so the organizers say, Hey buddy, maybe you should wear a mask. Now they could have maybe even said, buddy, you're out. Um, because then after he does pass test positive. And would have likely infected loads of people if he had played that game. Well, he did. He okay. I mean, he did play the rounds uh, after the Geary game. Yeah. So right. I, I I assume like a test came back negative, mm-hmm. which allowed him to play his next two games, and then like a later test came back positive, right? So there was some like gap between the person in a circle testing positive and him testing positive. Well, exactly, and that's when he's effect. effect- infecting everybody around it maybe right? so yeah yeah so well yeah i mean it i don't know i think it's okay clearly it's on the organizers to to set the rules and they should yeah. follow you know the country uh, the country's laws and stuff and whatever the equivalent of like the, the cdc is over there whatever they're they're saying um so it's yeah, it's weird to make this demand, like, and and I don't know, maybe we, we should have looked into um, the rules, like maybe it was in their, um, you know, maybe it was in the contract, right? That if like someone in Here's your- what I know about that. I do yeah. know a tidbit okay. on that. Apparently it said like the contract kind of generally says like the organizers have the prerogative to take the COVID measures that they think are necessary to protect, you know, the safety of of everyone at the event, but it doesn't say exactly what measures they will take. Okay, but um, all right, asking a player to wear a mask feels like that would be within reason of like a COVID measure that they could take, right? So it's not like a shock that they they asked him to to wear one. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. There's also a question of whether he has some personal responsibility, like someone in your inner circle tests positive. You do have kind of this like uh, societal obligation to stay away from others if you might be, um, yeah. you know, uh, carrying a virus. Uh, honestly, it's pretty messy. I don't, I don't know if there's like a, a great answer here. It's. Um, I mean, is it a? Let's just say it's a major bummer. I mean, it's easy to say that if someone in your circle tests positive, you gotta be at home for a while. It's a, it's easy to say it. it's a much bigger deal. <laughs> like actually do it, man. Oh man, what a bummer. What are you gonna go do? Sit in your hotel room, Vikonze, just sitting around waiting to test day after day. What a bummer. Should you have probably done it? Yeah. The other thing that's really complicated on this, and I've done this already a couple of times with tournaments, and, uh, is almost every tournament organizer now will say the COVID rules can change. So you yeah. can agree to play in the tournament a couple months in advance. And it's obvious that they have to say that because the country rules can change that even here in the States, cities can do their own stuff, you know, so you have no idea what the actual rules are going to be when they get there. I think I'll just highlight, I've had a couple experiences recently. I'm going to play a nice tournament tomorrow. And um, I think they're doing it much better than your average U.S. tournament. This is just to give you an example of what I think the obligation are for this COVID stuff between player and organizer. Most U.S. tournaments, especially the Goichberg tournaments, they line people up right next to each other, right next to each other. And it's very uncomfortable, first of all. But second of all, having played in those tournaments for year after year, COVID or no COVID, you're coming out of that thing with at least a 50% chance of some kind of viral infection, man. You're going to get something because people's stress levels go up in those tournaments. And so your immune you know, capabilities are going to go down. So there's just a huge possibility for any kind of outbreak at those events. Tomorrow, there will be a spacing between the boards and everybody has to show like a vaccination card. Hooray, let's do it. And I'm, I, with that, I'm, I feel like that's an example of what you know should, needs to be done. We might be living with this COVID thing forever. We shouldn't stop playing chess. So let's get a little space. We should have space anyway. <laughs> we should have a little space anyway between the boards and a vaccination card, and then we're good to go. Yeah. I think that what, what you mentioned, Jesse, is why this is so tricky. It's like the, the clause you said about how they have to say it might change. That's what makes it so tricky because to some extent, the more an organizer can lay out, like these are going to be the rules, the more a player knows what they're signing and they can choose to go to the tournament or not, right? So like if Dubov knew in advance, like you have to wear a mask to play in our tournament, then he could use that information to decide if he's playing or not. I think we won't have much discussion then. Then if he said yes and then showed up and refused, obviously he's failed his responsibility to yeah. the event. No, right? I, I think that's an important point, David, because I, I just want to note there was um, like Grischuk explicitly said he didn't play some event because masks would be required. He just yeah. said, like, that's the reason I wouldn't go. So it's not like a small thing for, for a lot of the players. They, right. Yeah. Right. And that may suck, but that's like your choice. And there's like, you know, maybe some variety of tournaments. There's still like interesting online events. You know, you have some choices. So if an organizer's like, here are the conditions, we're paying you this, you have to wear a mask, like you can decide whether it's worth, you know, that amount of money to you or not to wear the mask. I think it'd be pretty simple. But 
with the thing changing and local regulations and local case rates changing and like they're signing contracts for big tournaments like this probably like four to eight months in advance of the mm-hmm. event often yeah. um the organizers i guess have to put in these clauses saying like basically covid measures may be whatever we feel like they need to be at the time and then the players kind of signing something where it's not as explicitly laid out and it's harder to say if they're right or wrong to stop mid-tournament if there's something they disagree with, right? I mean, in theory, when you sign up to play a a tournament like this, I assume it kind of says, like, I'm going to play all rounds. I'm not just going to play the games I want to. Um, It's not just like, oh, yeah, you forfeit. Who cares? Like in a U.S. Open, right? Like no skin off the organizer's back. Like presumably they need you to show up to keep like parity because like some people are going to get forfeits against Dubov, some won't. It's sort of messy. So it's actually pretty pretty tricky to figure out and i i would say that in certain cases organizers can't spell everything out even though it would be more clear and obvious i think it's within the organizers rights on some things to say like we can't account for everything that could come up we're going to try and do our best here like you know some regulations we are doing here some things that we don't know for sure so so that brings up actually another really important wrinkle I think we should mention is that um, apparently, and, and this is just based off what I've been following on Twitter and like Chess24 broadcasts, um, supposedly the organizers asked Geary to play the game against Dubov on the rest day. Because Magnus said this thing about how Geary, you know, just wanted a free point. It was kind of cheeky, but usually there's some truth behind what he's saying. And, and then I, I believe I heard them talking about on the Chess24 commentary that, um, well, they were kind of discussing the situation. They were saying, like, it shouldn't have even been a question to Anish. It shouldn't be on the player to to decide. Then there's also this tweet by Fresenay, I think, defending Anish and all other members of the so-called uh, chicken chess club, as they, they call themselves, <laughs> <laughs> saying that he's right to, like, refuse and that rest days are rest days and he shouldn't. So I think... Um, yeah, this is also kind of a strange thing. My feeling is that, you know, maybe the organizers just should have been a lot more direct with with the players. Like, you, it, it seems very strange to ask both sides, like, oh, can you wear a mask and can you play the game on a different... Just tell them what they're, you know, tell them when the round is and what the requirements are. And then it's up to them if they want to drop out or, you know, like, it, the organizers should have decided, I think, ahead of time, like, you know, if they have to reschedule a game they'll do it. Or even if they had, you know, they didn't realize they might need to reschedule games. Like even if it couldn't be in the contract six months in advance and six months in advance, you sign a contract that says COVID measures as necessary. But then like the week that the tournament's starting, you tell people like, look, here's how it's going to go now that we know like the conditions. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a reasonable request to ask someone to, um, to reschedule a game. Obviously, it's inconvenient, but my point is like, you shouldn't make it up to the players. Like, as the organizer, you should just decide what you want to do, right? If if you're going to replay games on the rest day, then that's that's what's going to happen. And it sucks for those that have to do it, but those are the rules for the tournament, and they're fair for everyone. And it's COVID times, like it's it's force majeure. Like no one knows what's happening, and yeah, people are agreeing to these things months ahead of time. And let me stress something about this. This is a let's say a corollary to this thing that I think is maybe even a bigger issue that I, I think is important is, and that is whenever there's some kind of discussion of rules, 
the tournament organizer should never leave it up to the player. It puts the player into a really bad spot and it's not his position. I can't tell you how many times, for example, I'll give you guys a couple of situations. Um, I'm playing some game and a dude touches a, you know, does some kind of illegal, does an illegal move. Now he doesn't mm -hmm. lose because he does an illegal move, but he's supposed to get a time setback. Mm -hmm. Or similarly, if he calls for, says there's a three move repetition and it wasn't in fact a three move repetition. Again, there's supposed to be a time penalty. I can't tell you how many times like an organizer just because they're lazy comes up to me and is like, is this really like, looks at me, it's like, is this really something we need to do? No, you do it, buddy. It's not up to me. It's not up to me whether we follow the rules. You're the one who does it. Similarly, let's say a round is starting and your, your opponent's not there. It is not up to the player to decide if the clock is going to be started. No, the organizer, boom. If the organizer wants the game to start at three, it starts at three. It is not up to the player. And it creates this weird thing where then if it's up to the player, then it turns into this weird thing of like, oh, the player's not being cool because that's unsportsmanlike towards the other person, yada, yada. No, take that out of the equation completely. You know, it's the tournament organizer's decision if they want to do a rest day or whatever. You know? You're giving me some real food for thought there as a former organizer um, or actually current organizer, I guess. I like mm -hmm. figured out the rules for ultimate sensei competitions and stuff like that. I've often given people options, um, but you're definitely giving me some, some stuff to think about there. Well, yeah, you have to be careful with options when you're like offering any kind of like competitive advantage. I mean, actually, a very common case is when a player shows up right at the forfeit mark, like an hour or 30 minutes, and mm. uh, officially they should be forfeited. But sometimes right. since the player is there, then the other player is like, no, let's just play the game. You're here, right, whatever. Right. Uh, I think yeah. David Howell did this in, in Gibraltar famously a couple of years ago. And everyone was like, oh, what a gentleman, what a gentleman. But like, I don't know, if I was in that situation, I would probably want to play too. Um, also for me, you know, I might be chasing a norm, so I don't want to forfeit win. Mm -hmm. So as a player, I'm like, mm, I kind of want the option to play in that case. But I feel right. like at the same time, yeah, you don't want to put it also, what, what's with this like two minute penalty? I don't know if this is like a USCF thing, but like two, mm -hmm. you, have, you have three hours on your clock, you're getting a two minute penalty for making like an illegal move or like <laughs> an incorrect, uh, incorrect, very, very strange. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, listening to Jesse though, I got like a new idea, which is like, I'm always, I'm often trying to give these options to the players, but like another way you could see it is like, you tell the players like, we're gonna forfeit Duboff or whatever, right? And then if Anish really wants to play, he could be like, hey, I'd like to play the game, right? Or if Coast is like chasing a norm, he's like, um, you know, couldn't we do this or that? And then the organizer could say like, okay, yes. That way they didn't put any pressure on the player yeah, by like offering something that like says, are you a good sport or not, right? But if it actually comes from the player that they're seeking a solution, then the organizer could be flexible and say like, okay, you both want to do this. We let you, like, if both players want to do something, we let them do it. Maybe that's like a different way to try to handle that organizer's responsibility for making decisions while still trying to be sensitive to, to, to what players want. Yeah. But yeah, I think ultimately, yeah, we were feeling like it's weird to leave it up to the players um, because then, yeah, you're just putting them in a very awkward position. I think we all have to recognize that COVID times are weird. 
I also just want to say like being an organizer is a very, very thankless task. Someone that has done like uh, like open events, uh, medium size and stuff. Generally, people are only talking about the organizers if something has gone wrong, right? They're like yeah. arbiters. Um, and, and they do really work a lot. And I want to say like the folks in Waikonze, I know they had this drama with like Faruja last year, but I, I, I mean, I think they run like a really great event. And I don't think these players would be in uh, Waikonze, which is like super cold and windy in January, playing for like two weeks if they didn't really like the tournament, right? So I'm sure like the organizers are, for the most part, Doing something great right. people. Yeah, I don't think the players like return to events if like they hate the organizers and they hate everything, right? Um, but uh, okay, they but they also have a really important job and need to be held to a high standard and and so on and so forth, which is why we're we're uh, discussing. But we got um, less than ten minutes, yeah. guys. Maybe we should jump to uh, dress codes. Keep going. Dress codes. Um, let's say an organizer is paying you $10,000 to play in their tournament or $20,000 to play in their tournament. <clears throat> Can they tell you what you're going to wear at their tournament? I mean, uh, I think in a word, yes. Right. If they're paying for the event and they want a certain dress code of the, the players, uh, that seems like a, a reasonable ask. Um, we should also mention that uh, not too long ago, there was this controversy with with World Chess, where it came out that they were asking players that have sponsors for a cut of their sponsorship. At least that's how it was kind of portrayed. Mm -hmm. What then I think it turned out to be um, was, uh, it was something in the regulations. Actually, let me pull up the article because the way they worded it was really, um, I thought, worth discussing. So so this is what World Chess wrote to players. I'm quoting from their email. They said, we have been made aware that some players are negotiating 2022 contracts with new and existing sponsors, and we are happy to offer a position to your sponsors inside the events. The package will include a right to display the logo on players, jacket, and digital presence. And then uh, if you would like your sponsors to be advertised during the Grand Prix series, Please let me know and blah, 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 blah. So first glance, I don't know, it doesn't seem too bad. But the key thing here is that like the package will include a right to display the logo on the player's jacket, which is a very normal thing. Magnus, so it's saying you don't have that right unless you get a package with us, which essentially is going to mean like paying them. Yeah. So yeah, so that could be like an extreme extension seems... of a dress code here, maybe. Right, they're kind of playing it off as like, yeah, like a, a dress code thing. But um, they're also, I don't know, it's like they're stealing from, from the players. Because it's a very normal thing. Magnus has a jacket with logos, Caruana, MVL, Nakamura. Like, I think almost all the top players, they have like sponsors on their jackets. And I've like never heard of a tournament demanding like a cut of that. Right. Yeah. So It's the first time I've heard of it also. <laughs> Um, and as I've mentioned recently, you know, it wasn't, it's only fairly recently that players have sponsors, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this wouldn't have been a story because people didn't have, they didn't all have sponsors. Um, but, um, yeah, what, I mean, what, what's your take on this, Jesse? Well, first of all, I want to say that dress codes, it sounds like a great idea. Um, but one of the things as a player is it's very hard to wear starchy clothes for four hours <laughs> you know like and and uncomfortable shoes 
So already just take shoes, for example. You want something more like a sneaker, but I get it. If you want a dress code is not going to allow a sneaker. So you're going to have to find some kind of comfortable shoe <laughs> for that period of time. And you're going to want layers. For example, my body temperature usually drops uh, significantly after just sitting there for a while. And so I'll often want like a hat or something to pull over me. Um, and so that's weird to have a hat on, you know, to have a hat on at a tournament, but often like, you know, after a while you start getting cool in there and you're like, oh, better, better put on like a sweater. Like this is something I probably take tomorrow. Now my, I'm not in a fancy tournament. I can wear whatever I want tomorrow, but I have been in those circumstances. So just to understand that it's hard for the players to conform, I think, because chess players want something comfortable, first of all. Right. Second of all, it is a little weird disconcerting to see all the stuff on like Karyakin's jacket. Karyakin's got all kinds of stuff on there. Um, and I kind of have some sympathy, but of course, like it's the NASCAR example, right? That's other events have been doing this too. And other sports have also regulated what you can put out there and like mm -hmm. the size of the logo and all right. that kind of stuff. Would it be okay if, you know, somebody walked in with a jacket or something that's entire backside was covered by some, I don't know, <laughs> some weird websites, you know, link. Right. Yeah, it would be weird. An you ad know? for like breast enlargement surgeries yeah, exactly. or something like that. Yeah, what a, yeah, what a <laughs> weird sponsor. There's no way yeah. FIDE would allow that kind of a sponsor yeah. in their tournament. <laughs> Um, I mean, but okay, that's solved with a very simple fix saying like you're allowed to wear a logo, but it has to be like on right here on your shoulder and, and that's it. That's like the back has to be clean or, you know, whatever you want. Personally, my opinion is that I actually feel like, um, I mean, I understand dress codes and I understand why people uh, with that mindset would want them, but I, I would personally love to just see the players wear whatever they want, like let them express themselves. Like Ronian has a great sense of fashion. Anishkiri, like I mean, all these guys. Uh, you know, I'd be curious to see what they wear. Maybe yeah, Vonchik shows up in a in a tracksuit. Someone mentioned in chat, like that sounds awesome. I want, like, <laughs> I, I want to. I would love to see that personally. And what we should say is there's a um, a fundamental discrepancy because women are not required to have a dress code usually. Or theirs was like a lot simpler, right? Is what we heard. Right, but but basically, what you just said is what's applying to women, not men, and that is we they are encouraged to kind of like show their personal flavor, mm -hmm. show the fancy stuff, may, yeah. and then the problem with guys is you might get a guy in a tracksuit. <laughs> One guy in a tracksuit's <laughs> fine. Two, maybe too much, maybe too much. <laughs> you know. So I understand it's men are slovenly people. We don't care. We just want to be a little comfortable out there. I totally. Uh huh. Wow. Well, um, it's like I predicted that Jesse would use that word today, Kostya. That was in our uh, ongoing live notification. <laughs> nice. I mean, I mean, someone's making a good point in chat. You know, women they have their their own issues whenever they they play in the in the Middle East when it comes to like uh, yeah. dress codes. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, okay, I, I don't think we'll have time to get into it uh, today, but yeah, there it could be a lot more. Um, to this to this topic we should definitely just do a full dojo talks world chess so we could air out all of our grievances uh -huh. <laughs> but on um, some form of dress code is within the realm of reason 
for uh for spot for um for organizers of events maybe some regulation on the size of logos how how many like how much area it covers but certainly not like you have to pay to do it right like you could have some kind of regulations about how it should present how much it should be but i mean let the players do it it's like it's such an important thing for players to get sponsors to yeah the difference and, like, is the, the scarcity there's not like millions of dollars coming in like in nascar to these players it's like they're lucky to get any sponsors at all so yeah. Yeah, to put pressure on them, I think it's... And okay, World Chess doesn't have a great reputation as it starts, so maybe that's part of it, but... Um, Appreciate the yeah. And also, let's just say fellas. the fundamental problem with chess sponsors as contrasted to other sports. In other sports, you are selling the rights to the vid feed as well as the stadium to make some money. And yeah. it's very difficult, very difficult for the sponsors to make any money. You can't sell PGNs. No, that's been decided. Players often want to sell their PGNs. No, they are public domain. You're not getting anything. And they're now trying to make a little bit of money off the vid feed uh, of these events and selling it to say chess.com or somebody else. But I think that it's a hard sell because people are used to just getting it for free. You know, yeah. so that is, it's like a real big problem for the organizers and it would ultimately benefit the players if the organizers could make some money because then the organizers would pay to get the top players. Yeah. Well, um, I think we have to wrap it up, right guys? Yeah. So, um, maybe we could do a part two on, on this topic. I think there's, yeah, plenty more we could, uh, we could still discuss. But uh, that's going to do it. Thanks for everyone uh, listening. We're going to continue doing these shows, hopefully, uh, every every Friday. And, uh, yeah, we got a lot to talk about. Oh, man, so much drama. <laughs> we got to talk more more Twitter, too. Oh, my God. Tsutowski, Karyakin, yeah. Peter Heine. Uh, we, yeah, <laughs> we got to get into all of it. <laughs> all right, y'all. Have Bye. a good one. Bye.